Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Wednesday, October 24th, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. In this program, leading experts Akil Ritamar, Jeffrey Rosen, and Marsha Coyle examine how the Trump administration is addressing controversial issues pertaining to the American Constitution and the courts. Well, good evening, and thank you for being here. Uh, It's a pleasure to be back at the New York Historical Society and to be with you as well, and to be with these two gentlemen who are esteemed legal scholars. Now, I have to tell you, there's a little bit of bait and switch tonight. Uh, Back when we were planning this program, I think it was maybe in the winter, uh, we had thought about focusing on a number of really big, interesting constitutional questions that were headed towards the Supreme Court. Uh, I like to look at the Trump administration as the gift that keeps on giving to law professors (laughs) and litigators. Uh, But we didn't know then what we know now, and that was that Justice Kennedy was going to retire, and we were all about to go through an extraordinary confirmation process. So tonight, we're going to give you a little bit of what we promised at first, but we're really going to look at the Supreme Court that's going to face some of those big questions. And you already have heard about some of them. Uh, Just this week, uh, a lot was written about the uh, challenge to the administration putting a citizenship question on the next census. There's also a case in which uh, young people are challenging the administration on climate change. Uh, There's the sanctuary city litigation that's going on, the emoluments clause litigation, which is something I had never heard of in law school, but I've learned a lot about, uh, and uh, transgenders in the military. There is litigation there. So all these cases are moving in the pipeline to the Supreme Court. And we have a relatively new Supreme Court. You may, may not think that, but just one fact for you. Back in 2005, when John Roberts was nominated to the Supreme Court, that was the first time in 11 years that the court was about to experience a change in membership. And that was the longest period in modern history the court had gone without a change. But in just a little more than that 11-year period, the Supreme Court has had six new justices. That's two-thirds of the Supreme Court that has turned over. So, yeah, it's, it's sort of a new court. So tonight we're going to talk about that court and the confirmation process and uh, the justices and who they are, what, what may they do in the future. So I'm going to start this by setting up... Uh, the scenario that you're probably familiar with. We have Supreme Court nominee and federal judge Brett Kavanaugh, who uh, is accused of sexual uh, sexual assault, and he goes on Fox Television Network to make his case to the public, a medium that is associated with a particular partisan viewpoint, Republican. Then he goes into the hearings to defend himself, and he makes a very, let's call it a hyper-partisan rant against a particular political party that opposes him, the Democrats. Shortly before the vote, the Supreme Court nominee writes an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal, another medium that's associated with a particular uh, political voice, again, a Republican voice. He's confirmed in a, uh, I won't call it a fake swearing-in ceremony, but it's uh, a ceremonial swearing-in ceremony in the White House. Uh, He takes that opportunity to reassure the American public that he will be neutral. 
It's a, ser- no, see, you're laughing. Such cynics, okay? <laughs> I'm just setting up the scenario, expressing no, no viewpoint here. Uh, but in that ceremony, he tries to reassure the American public that he will be neutral. And he calls out the names of the people who have supported him and gotten him through confirmation. They're all Republicans for the most part. And our Supreme Court, the full court, is sitting there in full camera view, looking a little like fish out of water, except for Justice Clarence Thomas, who is happily clapping. Let me ask you this. (laughs) Okay. Why don't I just ask you? (laughs) No, no, I'm not expressing an opinion. I'm setting up up the trap. No, no, no trap, no trap. Is this the new norm that we have with... No, don't laugh. This is serious. Is this the new norm that we have with Supreme Court nominees, that they will now be using the media to basically campaign for the position? And, and that's... They do it themselves. And uh, if it is the new norm, and even if it isn't the new norm, what impact does it have on the Supreme Court and its legitimacy in the eyes of the American public. Well, it's wonderful to be back at the New York Historical <laughs> Society. Just with, trying to be provocative. With the spectacular uh, Marsha Coyle and my dear friend and law school teacher, Akila Mar. So this is a special treat. And I'm very glad to indulge your hypothetical uh, as, as the head of the National Constitution Center, which is the only nonpartisan center for constitutional education and debate, I have no opinions of my own whatsoever. <laughs> uh, but I can uh, argue it uh, round or flat. So is this the new norm? It would be foolish to say that there's anything normal about this seat. It was the most contested seat in, since Robert Bork. And we saw degrees of polarization in the past 30 years that have not existed before in American politics. In 1960, there was a 50% overlap between the most liberal Republican, rather the most liberal Republican and the most conservative Democrat in Congress. Now there is no overlap. And that polarization affected the confirmation process and the court. Uh, Will it affect the legitimacy of the court? This is a question that conservatives as well as liberals are concerned about. And both are wondering, first of all, what the effect on Justice Kavanaugh will be. Now, before... uh, Dr. Ford's allegations, many conservatives believed that Justice Kavanaugh would be more like Chief Justice John Roberts than like Justice Clarence Thomas or Neil Gorsuch. He doesn't call himself an originalist. He had shown a tendency to balance and to be pragmatic and express concern about the legitimacy of the court. And many people on both sides thought that he would join Roberts in not overturning Roe cleanly and generally uh, being uh, slightly to the uh, center. So the question now is, was he so scarred by the hearings that he's going to try to get revenge and will act as a partisan? And no one knows, of course. But I asked that question to one of his former law clerks, who has been one of his most prominent defenders, last week on the National Constitution Center's We the People podcast. So every week I get to call up the top liberal and conservative scholars in the country to debate the constitutional issues of the week. And it is a deeply moving civic enterprise to hear people set aside their political views and debate things in constitutional terms. And they tend to be very civil and very illuminating. And this clerk thought that he would rise above. She pointed to his statement in the Oval in the, in the White House ceremony, and she said it was a question of temperament, and it was ultimately a spiritual question as well. Justice Kavanaugh, soon after he was confirmed, went back to the Catholic Charities to serve the same meals to poor kids that he's been doing for his whole life. He cares very seriously about that. And ultimately, we can all, none of us, I think, although all of us have uh, uh, experience challenges in life, it, it would be hard to imagine that particular trauma, but ultimately the way you respond to that has to do with your character and your conception of your obligation to others. So we'll see. But um, Chief Justice Roberts and his colleagues are deeply concerned about the legitimacy of the court. We saw the chief in, Indi- in Indiana last week 
say that the legitimacy of the court depends on the public's confidence in it as a nonpartisan institution. We can talk more about his record on that uh, later. He's going to go out of his way to avoid putting Justice Kavanaugh in the position of being part of a five to four majority by avoiding hearing the most controversial cases, by trying to define them narrowly rather than broadly and so forth. So Justice Kavanaugh will have the opportunity to rise above if he chooses to take it. And whether he will or not, we'll see. But the future legitimacy of the court will turn into a large part on his view of his job and the leadership of the most powerful and uh, important jurist in America right now, Chief Justice John Roberts. Well, Akil, I remember you once told me that you thought at least uh, when uh, Justice Kavanaugh went on television that this could be the start of uh, something we see down the road, that nominees will start running for their uh, positions on the Supreme Court. Uh, and so how do you view what, what happened altogether and its effect on the Supreme Court? So I'll come to television at the end, but let me put everything in historical context because this is the New York Historical Society. So we start with the history of the Constitution itself, which creates a political process for court replenishment. That is not a bug. It's a feature. It's by design. You could imagine a system where justices pick their own replacements. That's not the system we have. We have a system in which a politically selected president and a politically selected Senate actually replenish the court. Um, that's from the beginning. And all many of your early justices are basically Pauls. Um, John Marshall is um, a political operative, and he's a hardcore federalist, very partisan federalist, never a judge before a justice. And Roger Taney was never a judge before a justice, um, and neither um, was um, uh, um, uh, Waite um, or uh, Salmon P. Uh, Chase, uh, Chief Justice, um, uh, uh, total political operative. Neither was Earl Warren. Uh, neither was... Um, uh, Actually, um, uh, William Rehnquist. These are chief justices. He was associate justice. But um, so uh, uh, the, the court that gave you Brown versus Board of Education, only one had prior judicial experience, and none of you will know his name. His name is Sherman Minton, um, former senator, and he, and he was also uh, he was a, um, a, a lower federal court judge, but also a former senator. Okay, so Constitution by design makes this a political process. Second. Jeff's told you that politics have changed because there's intense political polarization now. It's not about one person, Trump, or another person. It's the fact that there are no more conservative Republicans and liberal, um, um, uh, 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 as conservative uh, Democrats and liberal Republicans. Um, in 1960, the most conservative people in America were actually Democrats, Southern Democrats. And there was a huge uh, liberal wing called the Rockefeller Wing of the Republican Party, no more. So you have a world of intense political polarization in which 48 senators are um, pretty much on the left and 48 are pretty much on the right and there are four in the middle. It's very, uh, very few in the middle, in fact. Um, so, so that's... Those are structural things. Now let me tell you something. That's, that's one bit of history. It's a political process, and the, uh, the history of our parties um, have changed. Second, now let's look at the history of Brett Kavanaugh. Brett Kavanaugh was a total political operative before he became a court of appeals judge. Um, wherever in the decade before he was a court of appeals judge, wherever there was right-wing you know, uh, stuff to be done, he was doing it. He was with Ken Starr. Um, and then he was with um, against the Clintons, and then he was uh, with um, uh, George W. Bush's team in Florida, uh, which is hardball, in December of 2000. And then he was in the Bush White House replenishing the lower federal courts and working on um, uh, 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 extreme rendition policy, uh, uh, extreme interrogation policies. Critics called them you know, torture uh, policies and, and the rest. So that's who he was. Uh, you know, and... and now here's the point. And then he was a judge on the federal... And, and his process of confirmation was extremely fraught to the D.C. Circuit. The Democrats did not like him at all. They tried to thwart him in every way. 
Oh, and then he was a judge for 12 years, and he was not a partisan judge at all, you see. Because the Constitution creates a political process of appointment and then life, tenure, thereafter, and you don't have to just serve your political masters. You can actually um, exhibit some judicial independence. And that's what Brett Kavanaugh did for 12 years after being a Paul, okay, a political operative. I'm a Democrat. He was a Republican, and he went on the D.C. circuit and he voted 96%, 94%, 96% of the time with Merrick Garland, um, my friend. When Merrick Garland was nominated to the Supreme Court, Brett Kavanaugh said nice things about Merrick Garland. Um, uh, taking, uh, Brett Kavanaugh took law clerks who happened to be liberals, who happened to be moderates, as well as law clerks who happened to be conservatives. That's what he did. That's history. Now you say, ah, but now he's got the brass ring. Now he's on the Supreme Court. He can do whatever the heck he wants. Well, really? You see... Because history doesn't stop when you get on the Supreme Court. It keeps going, and he's going to be judged by history. And if he's smart, and I think he is, he knows that the great justices were Pauls who, once they got on the court, stopped being Pauls. Their names are John Marshall, who was a Federalist, who worked with Jeffersonian appointees to get there uh, to, to, to ascend Mount Olympus. And Earl Warren is a Republican. Some of you may even remember he ran for the vice presidency, you know, back when you were only middle-aged. I'm just joking. Um, uh, uh, So, um, uh, and had Dewey defeated Truman, you know, would have been Republican vice president Earl Warren. But he gets on the court and works with Democratic appointees to create the, the, the Warren court. So I think he's a student of history, Brett Kavanaugh, and he knows that if he wants to be great, he actually is going to have to overcome the skepticism, just as John Marshall did, um, just as um, uh, uh, Earl Warren did. John Roberts, in the, and, and he can't have any influence at all, you need to understand, unless four other people are with him, you see. And those four others care about the legitimacy of the court. Oh, and he actually won't have that much legitimacy unless he sometimes works with Democrats, like Steve Breyer, who's a Democrat who likes working with Republicans, um, like Elena Kagan, who has... Dean of the Harvard Law School, hired Brett Kavanaugh repeatedly to teach courses at the Harvard Law School. And Brett Kavanaugh will not go down, in the, will not be in the pantheon if he doesn't sometimes work with Breyer, sometimes work with Kavanaugh, um, if he doesn't um, uh, actually work with John Roberts, who in the big, who was Mr. Republican, who in the biggest case of his life sided with four Democrat appointees to uphold Obamacare in the Sebelius litigation and then did it again in a case called King against Burwell. Okay, now as for television, so all I'm saying is who knows, but he was a Paul who was a pretty good um, and, and, and fair uh, D.C. Circuit judge, and if he, if he studies history, and I think he has, he understands that the real greats actually aren't Pauls once on the court. He, as a judge, gave all sorts of speeches about his heroes. His heroes were judges in the Nixon tapes case, four of whom appointed by Richard Nixon, three of whom ruled against Richard Nixon, and a fourth recused himself. Warren Berger, Lewis Powell, Harry Blackman. He um, celebrates, um, and he did in lots of his writing and speeches, uh, um, Robert Jackson, a Republican, excuse me, a Democrat attorney general, solicitor general, you know, worked in the White House, a total executive branch shill, you know, and then in the big, one of the biggest cases of life, the Youngstown Steel seizure case, rules against a, Republican, a Democratic president, um, uh, Harry, Harry Truman. So a Democrat executive branch guy becoming a justice, ruling against a Democrat executive uh, president. Um, so, um, so I think he has a sense of history. We will see. Um, uh, on television, uh, I told... Uh, Merrick Garland's friend, if they're not giving you a hearing, here's what you can do if you want to. You can actually um, go on TV yourself and introduce yourself. I'm sure Stephen Colbert will be happy to have you, and, you can, and I'll help arrange it, you know, um, if you like. And, and uh, I've been on the show a couple of times, and Colbert would love to have you. The Democrats, I told the Democrats in the Senate, you can have your own hearing. You can, you can put it in a room and actually invite the Republicans if they want to uh, join. Um, you can have C-SPAN there. He can introduce himself to the American people. They chose not to do that. That was their choice. They thought it was a little edgy, and it was. Um, but I actually, um, and, and I, oh, I talk about all this in the postscript of my new book. Um, uh, but, um, uh, uh, but they thought it was a little edgy, but that's the world that we're actually increasingly moving toward um, 
Um, and I think everyone behaved badly with the cameras on. Um, almost all the senators on both sides, and and and, uh, and and so there is an argument that we shouldn't have televised hearings. It should all be actually on the papers. Um, um, but the world in which we're moving toward is one in which it's increasingly partisan. It's always been political, but it's increasingly partisan. Um, and it's, it's televised. One final point. Eight of your nine justices are the product of um, partisan processes. Four Justices on the Supreme Court are Republicans uh, uh, who were picked by Republican presidents and confirmed by Republican Senates. That's John Roberts and Sam Alito and, um, and Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. And four are Democrats who are nominated by Democratic presidents and confirmed by Democrat Senates, Democratic Senates, and that's Sonia Sotomayor and, and, um, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg and, 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 and Stephen uh, uh, Breyer, um, uh, and, and who am I missing? Kagan. Kagan, Elena. Um, only one, Clarence Thomas, was actually a product of divided government. He was confirmed, I think, 52-48, Republican yes. president, Democratic Senate. You remember that that wasn't exactly pretty. Um, uh, and, um, but here's one final thing I want you to see. The votes for Kavanaugh, the, the nanosecond he was announced... People were on TV, including my students, Cory Booker saying, you know, he's the prince of darkness, he's horrible. But within minutes of the announcement, and, and some of them had even placards, they hadn't even filled in the name, just a pose, and then they actually, at the last minute, put the name in. He had, on July 10th, basically, there are 49 votes against him. And he had, on September 7th, when I actually testified on his behalf before the allegations, basically 49 votes against him. And he had, on October 9th, when he went through or something, basically 49 votes against him. Almost no one changed their mind in the process, actually. So it's all about, actually, elections and not this, these hearings, which are televised. The, the press loves them, but things are decided on election day. And if you want President Trump to have lots more running room for lower federal courts, I hope we talk about that, then you vote Republican for Senate uh, next um, a month. And if you don't want that, then you vote Democrat for Senate next month. Okay? Because that's when it's going to be decided, not on, on television, these confirmation hearings. That's epiphenomenal. Well, um, when the court had the Scalia vacancy, uh, we saw a core group of justices working very hard to avoid 4-4 splits. And those four were, I've been told uh, by good sources, John Roberts, um, Elena Kagan, Anthony Kennedy, and Stephen Breyer. Right. Okay? That, that, those, that's what that's I was your core. As soon as Justice Gorsuch came on the bench, the term changed. It was no longer the low-key cooperative court. We had suddenly this docket packed with high-profile cases. That was just last term. And you saw the 5-4 splits. Now we have Justice Kavanaugh on the court. We no longer have Justice Kennedy among that four core who were very concerned about how the institution was viewed um, and uh, no longer have him as the center of the court, the swing vote. How does... Does the court return now, as it did last term, to getting another big docket full of high-profile culture war issues? How does John Roberts try to prevent the court from looking like it is partisan with many, many 5-4 splits? So the, one of the greatest uh, interviews I ever had the luck of having was with Chief Justice Roberts at the end of his first term. It was 2006, and I was writing a book for PBS on the Supreme Court. It had the remarkably creative title, The Supreme Court. <laughs> and it turns out that John Roberts is a PBS fan, and he, I'm sure he's a big fan of yours, Marsha, and he agreed to sit down with me for an interview about what he hoped to achieve as Chief Justice. And he said, with apologies to you, Professor Rosen, uh, law professors have made among the worst Chief Justices in history they're too ideological, they're too committed to their own agendas, and they don't have appropriate attention to the legitimacy of the court and the team dynamic. He said, I am concerned 
that this is a polarized time. Congress and the presidency are at each other's throats. It is crucially important, said John Roberts in 2006, that citizens think of the court as something larger than the ideological backgrounds of their justices, that they not see five Republicans against four Democrats. They take seriously the majestic promise, this is all John Roberts' most deeply felt beliefs, of equal justice on the law that's found on the pediment of the Supreme Court that inspired me every time I went as an advocate, said Chief Justice Roberts. And he said, I will try as chief to embrace the example of my greatest predecessor, John Marshall. Now, he said, I'm not comparing myself to Marshall. No one is as great as he, but, uh, you know, he's the gold standard. This is in 2006. He said, if you're a competitive bicyclist, you uh, aspire to be Lance Armstrong. (laughs) And uh, he he said, uh, I'm going to try to do what Marshall did. He said, Marshall convinced his colleagues to live together in the same boarding house where they would discuss cases over a hogshead of Marshall's favorite drink, Madeira. And all the justices would get buzzed. And all the cases were unanimous. (laughs) So Robert said that he would try to persuade his colleagues to converge around technical opinions, avoiding sweeping constitutional principles, and who would also try to convince them that it was more in their interest to win 80% of the time on narrow technical grounds with a unanimous decision than to flip a coin and with Kennedy as the swing run the risk of uh, you know, winning five to four. And he said, I don't know if I can pull it off, but I think it's urgently important for the country and this is what I'm going to do. So I was very impressed with his sincerity and I, in retrospect, was not surprised when he voted the way Akil uh, noted that he did in the two health care cases because I went back to read the transcripts of the interview and John Roberts said, I hope it will be said when people read my opinions that each of them expresses a concern about institutional legitimacy, that people understand that uh, I think it's my role as chief. I might have been different if I were an associate justice, but my central role as chief is to try to persuade citizens that the court is legitimate by avoiding these polarizing splits. And then Chief Justice Roberts asked me a very important question. He said, who do you think will be most opposed to my vision of narrow, unanimous opinions? And I was anxious. It was the chief. I had a brain freeze and I couldn't answer, but you're calm and relaxed on this uh, jovial evening. So who do you think, if you think back to 2006, would have been most opposed to narrow, unanimous opinions? I hear a Ginsburg and a Scalia. Both are excellent Guesses, Ginsburg, the most liberal justice now, although she was not in 2006 before she became the senior associate justice. Scalia, then the most conservative, would seem like the kind of law professor devoted to their own uh, vision that Roberts had in mind. But it was not Ginsburg or Scalia. Thomas is a good guess for the same reason as Scalia. Scalia said... Uh, when he once said of Thomas, the difference between me and Thomas is that Thomas would vote to overturn any decision he thinks is wrongly decided. I, Scalia, wouldn't do that because I'm not a nut. (laughs) (laughs) And he meant that in in an affectionate sense of his great friend, (laughs) Justice Thomas. So that makes a lot of sense, uh, but it's not Thomas. Alito wasn't on the court. Kennedy, Kennedy, yes, it was Kennedy. Kennedy. And the reason that he just... Chief Justice Roberts accurately predicted that Justice Kennedy would be the greatest obstacle to narrow unanimous opinions isn't because he was the most conservative justice, because he wasn't. He became the median justice, but because of Justice Kennedy's judicial philosophy. Justice Ken- There's a great book about Justice Kennedy, The Tie Goes to Liberty. He likes really sweeping abstractions about liberty. He said in the case affirming Roe v. Wade, at the core of liberty is the right to define one's own conception of meaning, the universe, the mystery of human life. Justice Scalia ridiculed that as the sweet mystery of life passage, but it was a very powerful, strong, principled vision of autonomy that could sometimes favor liberals, as in the abortion and marriage equality cases, and sometimes conservatives. Kennedy's vote to strike down the health care mandate also reflected a strong vision of autonomy. It's a libertarian vision. And that's why we know from reporting by Marsha as well as others, and Marsha's reporting is exemplary, that there were a bunch of cases where Roberts wanted to go narrow. In the Citizens United case, Roberts wanted a technical opinion that would have said that either broadcast on demand wasn't covered or that there was an exception for corporations that didn't have a lot of corporate money, that were basically nonprofits. But Kennedy wanted to be sweeping, and then Roberts had to go along. So the really interesting dynamic is Kennedy's not on the court anymore. And Kavanaugh may be more conservative than Kennedy. He is by all of the empirical measures. But he might also be willing to be more technical. If he's not as committed to liberty in this sweeping, abstract, libertarian way, 
for almost any of the cases that Marsha talked about before the, that are coming up in the pipeline, you can decide them technically and narrowly in a conservative way that will only affect the case at hand, or you can decide them in sweeping ways that will affect lots of other cases. So just to take one example of a case that's on the docket, which is what Marsha originally uh, rightly wanted to talk about, the court is deciding whether to take a case involving whether Maryland can display a big cross that's been up for about 100 years. And uh, if the court takes the case, it could decide it really narrowly to basically say historic crosses located over the D.C. border on a traffic circle in Maryland can stand, you know, to, to basically just make it a case of one, as they did in the Trinity Lutheran case involving playground mats and religious schools. Or they could take the sweeping position that it's okay for the state openly to endorse religion by having sectarian monuments. And the difference between whether you decide it narrowly or broadly will determine whether or not the establishment clause will be transformed. So there's at least a possibility, although we, don't, we won't know until we see it, that Justice Kavanaugh will be uh, amenable to Chief Justice Roberts' instinct to decide things narrowly rather than broadly, and especially because he'll be sensitive to the need for legitimacy for precisely the reasons that Akil suggested. If he wants to be great, if he wants to be to transcend the, 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 the trauma of the confirmation hearings and to be remembered as a, a principal judge, he, he can't just be a, a reliable partisan vote. He has to distinguish himself in some ways. And Justices Kagan and Breyer, as Akhil suggested, are so eager for this. I mean, we saw this in Bush v. Gore where Breyer and Souter then reached out to uh, Kennedy in the hope they could get a compromise about saying there was an equal protection violation but allowing the case to continue. And at the last minute, Kennedy was just toying with him, and then he withdrew his hand and decided to stop the recount because he just was not a pragmatic compromiser. But maybe Kavanaugh will be different. The, you, then you ask what else can Robert do in addition to uh, trying to persuade Kavanaugh that it would be better for him to be like Roberts than like Kennedy. He can, <clears throat> as he suggested in Indianapolis, have the court just not take the controversial cases. Now, as you rightly suggested, Marsha, when it was four to four, they managed not to take the cases because they didn't know which way they'd go. But then uh, Justice Gorsuch got on and it went back to five to fours. There is this technical custom called the rule of four, the rule of five, which is that if four justices vote to hear a case, then a customary fifth vote is thrown in and they hear the case. So Roberts will really have to convince the other four conservatives that it's not in their interest to take these cases, even if they have the votes to right. take them and decide them in conservative um, ways. Now, that's a big lift. Yes. And it's yes. just not at all clear that he can do that because they may really want to decide take the, the case. cases. And, and, and he told me, you know, I uh, am just one of nine votes. <clears throat> not only my, it's not my greatest power, my only power is the power either to write the opinion when I'm in the majority or to assign it to the judge who best reflects my views and to speak first at the conference. So the way the court decides cases is they go around the table and they all speak in order of seniority. And the chief is considered most senior, although he's not been on the court longest, and he speaks first. And then down to the most junior justice will be Justice Kavanaugh. The chief thought that by defining cases narrowly and giving his fellow justices an opportunity to decide them narrowly, he could try to persuade them like an advocate to do that. And I think that's what he's been trying to do. But with mixed success because of Kennedy, maybe more luck because of Kavanaugh. So that's the hopeful. And he he does have very strong feelings of his own, does he not, on certain cases, certain areas of the law? um, The press... Um, has incentive to hype everything uh, so that you'll stay glued and, and to, to the, the tube. And I was so anxious after the election, and now I'm sleeping so much better because I just stopped watching cable. I, I recommend this to you all. You know, take a deep breath, you know, relax a little bit. Or if you have to watch, watch Fox as well as NBC, and you'll actually see that there are different perspectives on things. So let's start with the middle, with Anthony Kennedy. So Kennedy, Roberts, Kavanaugh, because it's Kennedy's seat that's being replaced. So Anthony Kennedy was nominated by a Republican president and confirmed by a Democratic Senate. So it's not a total surprise that in some of the biggest cases of his... and, And remember that Bork... Uh, was borked and that went and failed, and then Ginsburg. So that what happens when you have divided government is you're going to get justices who are a little bit more 
um, centrist, um, and, uh, but there are two kinds of centrist, uh, Jeff just told you. Let's call them splitters and swingers. So splitters <laughs> split the difference. They, you know, half a loaf to each. O'Connor tended to be a splitter. She was a more legislative person. That's how legislators compromise. Breyer is more of a splitter. Um, um, Roberts decides things narrowly. He's got splitting tendencies. Um, uh, Justice Kennedy is a swinger. Sometimes he's all in with the conservatives, Citizens United, let's say, or um, Sibelius actually on health care, way with the conservatives. Sometimes he's all in with the liberals. He writes all of the liberal opinions on gay rights, a case called Lawrence versus Texas, um, a case called um, uh, Romer versus Evans, a, a, a case um, called Windsor, and then same-sex marriage Sibelius. Every one of those he writes for the court joined by the liberals, and then three of them, the, liberal, the other liberals, don't say anything at all. It's just whatever you say, you know, uh, Tony, because we don't want to mess. If you're willing to vote with us, we don't want to um, uh, uh, queer the deal, so to speak. Um, so, um, uh, so Kennedy's a swinger, um, and Roberts is a splitter. But it was a fragile court, you see, because we had a pretty strong liberal wing, especially when Ruth Bader Ginsburg went left and conservatives, and not that many folks in the middle. In the two biggest cases of his life, Roberts switched over, the health care cases. But other than that, he generally hasn't been joining the liberals. But Kennedy did, especially on, on um, death penalty, on, um, on some race cases and affirmative action, he actually was willing to accommodate affirmative action even though he doesn't love it and, and sort of reaffirm the Bakke principle that, that, that pluses are, are okay but quotas are, are not okay in cases involving sexual relations in, um, and um, reproductive rights row. So he's a swinger, um, um, and he's, he was the product of divided government, you see. Now, here's why the press is, I think, exaggerating a lot. Either you think Anthony Kennedy doesn't know what he's doing, or you think, no, there's a reason that he was actually the most important influential judge of justice of the last 30 years. I think the latter. Um, I'm impressed by him, even though I don't always um, uh, agree with him. But it was a somewhat fragile court because it had a narrow pivot, just like the Senate, 48 on one side, 48 on the other side, and only four people who might ever change their mind, Lisa Murkowski, Joe Manchin, Joe Donnelly, um, and uh, Susan Collins or something. That's very brittle when you have very few people in the middle and lots on the extremes because the extremes... In the Senate, they're worried about being actually primaried by their bases. Tea Party for the Republicans and, you know, Bernie Sanders uh, crazies uh, for the Democrats, okay? So it's symmetric. I'm trying to actually analyze this. The, the Burger Court had a big middle. You had Powell. You had White. You had Stewart. Um, um, you had Stevens. So a much bigger middle block. Um, um, and, uh, but you have a very narrow Supreme Court. Now, first, Kennedy comes on. Kennedy, he doesn't do a scle. He doesn't pass away unexpectedly. He chooses to step down. And he, I believe, wanted to be um, replaced by Kavanaugh, who was his law clerk, you see. Um, And um, uh, so either he doesn't know his legacy, which would be pretty strike, you know, unusual for a judge. He knows exactly what his legacy is. He'd like to live forever. That's not given to him. So his second... Uh, best choice is actually to clone himself as best he can. And I think he believes that Kavanaugh will be a faithful guardian of his legacy. Okay? Who, you thought it was all partisan, Marsha, but twice, Anthony Kennedy, when you set up, and it was fun, but twice Anthony Kennedy swore him in, you know, in private and in public, and chose to do that, chose to um, basically try to confer some of his legitimacy to, to transfer it with the laying of hands. And all the justices showed up, and they knew what they were going to get in a Trump White House ceremony. So, so the press is getting you all agitated and hyped, but, but, but don't buy it, actually. Um, there's going to be, I predict, more continuity than you would expect. Kavanaugh will be more like Kennedy than you might, actually, than lots of people are predicting. He's more of an originalist, and Kennedy wasn't. Um, um, And Roberts, you see, look, at most, 
can't, remember, Kavanaugh can do nothing without four others. So he can't be out of the mainstream and a threat to the republic because you can't be out of the mainstream and actually, on case after case after case, have four other justices um, appointed at different times by different presidents, confirmed by different senates. That would be the mainstream. It might be the center-right rather than the center-left where I'm located, but it's still going to be the mainstream. The median justice basically has moved from Kennedy to Roberts, if Kavanaugh is to the right of Roberts, if you think he is. He's a little bit more originalist. Fine, but Roberts is not a crazy man at all. Um, And he's now going to be both chief justice and possibly the swing justice, which he wasn't before. Um, And that wasn't Warren Berger, who was on the right. That wasn't um, William Rehnquist, who was on the right. That wasn't Earl Warren, who was on the left. Maybe Charles Evans Hughes was both the chief and the swing. This will be a very powerful position indeed for John Roberts to be both um, chief and swing. Um, and, and, and if he is the person that you think he is, based on this 2006 interview... And everything he's done since. Um, well, especially the Sibelius case, the health care case. In the biggest case of his life, to repeat, he did not torpedo Obamacare. All the other Republican justices, including the swinger Kennedy, voted to actually gut the whole thing. And he wisely said, I will not be in the pantheon if I do that. Akhil Amar and all these liberals at Yale will actually, you know, write the history and they're not going to like this. And, and, you know, so I have to evolve or grow or whatever. Um, Now, that one point you're wrong on, because someone asked Roberts recently, are you concerned that all the justices went to elite law schools? And he said, not all of them went to elite law schools. Some of them went to Yale. Yes. (laughs) All true. Um, but I'm predicting there will not be a sharp, sharp lurch because it's not in Robert's interest to do that. I don't think it's in Kavanaugh's long-term interest to do that. That said, you should not be surprised if, if Roe versus Wade in particular is, is, is hollowed out, not overruled, but just hollowed out. But that's because every single person on Donald Trump's list of 25 actually would have done that because for 30 years the Republican Party platform has been that Roe is wrong. You know, you might not like that. That might not be a mainstream position in, on this little island, okay? But it actually is, in America, the position of the party that has won a whole bunch of presidential elections again and again and again. So I'm not saying that Roe is absolutely um, stable and, and could never be hollowed out. I am saying you won't see a, a lurch to the right on all sorts of things, especially on same-sex marriage, which is Kennedy's legacy, gay rights, I would be very surprised if Kavanaugh tried to undermine that. And there are people on, the, on Trump's list of 25 who would have um, uh, uh, been opposed to that. People like Bill Pryor, maybe even Amy Coney Bear. Here are your choices when you lose the Senate and the presidency, as my party you know, did. You're going to get um, either, in effect, a Kennedy clerk or a Scalia a clerk. You pick. But, but those are your choices when you lose both the Senate and the presidency. Okay, we're going to move from the sunshine side of the mountain. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I, I don't like beer. (laughs) (laughs) Neither do I, Jeff. Uh, You you made a good point about historically how uh, the court had a bigger center. Yes. And uh, how it doesn't now, and, and that can create difficulties for the court. So let's... But he's predicting and I'm predicting a possible... If there hadn't been this... Real... All the sexual assault stuff, I was predicting the emergence of a new center with Roberts, Kavanaugh, Breyer, and Kagan. Um, right. A recreation of the new Burger Court. Because Kagan and Breyer are Democrats who know how to work with Republicans. Yes, I, I agree with that. I, I think that it's still open what will happen with Kavanaugh. Uh, but because you talked about, you know, the, the, the center being sort of really narrowed now, uh, that, that brings to mind all of the debate that's going on right now about whether we should change the court. Uh, and <laughs> how should we change it so that we don't keep going through situations like we went through, uh, putting aside the sexual assault charges, but these hyper-partisan confirmation processes. And lots of you have been writing about term limits, about packing the court. Uh, Putting aside the fact that they don't have a snowball's chance of hell in in a Republican-controlled Congress, what do you think it's time? 
In fact, one of the questions, too, that I have here, which is interesting, was whether it's, it's even time to rewrite the Constitution. That Jefferson, Jefferson said, did he not, that it should be done every so many years? Jefferson did say that because he believed what was, as I said, in law school for some bet that... Uh, well, I'm laughing for a reason that you... It's an inside joke. Someone dared me when I was in Akil's first year class to stand up without any provocation and say, Jefferson was the Antichrist. <laughs> and I did, and I won the bet. I forgot. It was... Uh, Jefferson was the Antichrist from Madison's point of view, because Jefferson believed that we needed a little blood uh, could uh, leaven the soil every few years and that the earth was not held in usufruct for the living and that uh, constitutional conventions frequently were a good thing. Madison thought the worst thing that could happen would be another convention because he believed that it would succumb to demagogues and the mob. He thought that it was a miracle that the first convention had produced the greatest document of human freedom in history. He thought a second convention would be populated by the same state legislators or Congress people who were in the thrall of partisan and party passions, and he really didn't want one. So you ask, what about the various possibilities? We've had debates on all these questions at the Constitution Center, both on the podcast and on these great live programs in Philadelphia and around the country. And when it comes to a constitutional convention, actually, I'll try it now. Uh, first, I'm going to just ask for a show of hands. Who thinks we should have a constitutional convention? No, who thinks we should not have a constitutional convention? Fascinating. Okay. So when we tried it in Philly, the initial vote actually was in favor of a convention. Maybe it was because it was before Kavanaugh and before, I think it, it may have even been before 2016. Well, maybe this is just a much more sober audience. If they're Madisonians, absolutely. But then uh, a Georgetown law professor, David Super, uh, gave a very legalistic, powerful closing argument saying it could be partisan hacks and the convention could go rogue. Yes. Right now, 20. Eight states have called for a balanced budget amendment, a convention of the states that would propose a balanced budget amendment. Just seven more are necessary. But you could call a convention for one purpose, and it could choose to repeal the First Amendment and so forth. Now, then it would, an amendment would have to be ratified by three-quarters of the state legislatures or by special conventions. So the chance of it actually making it into the Constitution, if a supermajority supposed it, is low. But after this closing argument, people changed their mind and, and didn't want a convention. What about the other possibilities? Um, Court packing is a real possibility. If the Democrats take the White House and both houses of Congress, I think there is a real possibility that they will change the size of the Supreme Court. Our dear friend, my brother-in-law, your former student, Neil Katyal, I think, former uh, acting solicitor general, has endorsed court packing along with other moderate Democrats. And there is historic precedent for it. Um, In the election of 1800, the outgoing... Uh, Federalists were so determined to deny the incoming Jeffersonians the right to appoint justices that they changed the size of the court and canceled the Supreme Court term. And Marshall, so afraid of being uh, basically uh, losing a political uh, fight, acquiesced and allowed the court not to sit. Then the Jeffersonians came in and restored the size of the court. During the Civil War, the court uh, fluctuated from, it was 10 justices for a while. It went down to seven before going back up to Nine. So, uh, and court packing uh, might have passed if the switch in time hadn't saved nine and if the court hadn't backed off and upheld FDR's New Deal rather than proposing it. So there is a precedent for it. I think, what do I think? I mean, as I I think it would be a, it would it would be a disaster for the nonpartisan legitimacy of the rule of law because as soon as the Republicans got in, then they would pack the court again, and we could be in for and during this incredibly polarized time, where the geographic polarization is combined with polarization on social media, and both sides are directly communicating with their bases to a degree even more dramatically than the factions of Madison's time and the election of 1800. The virtual mobs that we have today make Madison's faction look tame. And add that to the speed of deliberation on social media, a Madisonian nightmare since the entire Madisonian system is designed to slow down the formation of national majorities so that people can be guided by reason rather than passion. Now that all of those cooling mechanisms are under assault, a wave of retaliatory court packing, although it might well occur, would be really bad. So I, that's for, I'll, I'll just end by saying there's a lot of bipartisan support for term limits. And on our 
podcast, we've had strong conservatives and strong liberals say that that kind of unilateral disarmament where each president gets two appointments and there are 18-year terms would make a lot of sense. But as you suggested, Marsha, it would probably take a constitutional amendment, which is unlikely to pass, uh, or the kind of compromise in Congress, which is unlikely to pass. So the most promising solution doesn't seem very practical. Everything except that last point I I agree with. It's a mistake to have an amendment. The Constitution really contemplates um, in its amendment processes, two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate, three-quarters of the states, that amendments will pass when there's an overwhelming national consensus, which means both parties have to be on board. Today, the parties are pulling hard in different directions, um, and there's not a proper consensus, so it's an unpromising time to try to amend the Constitution. As for court packing, Jeff is absolutely right. One side tries to do it, and then the other, and then you actually have an arms race. Um, and by the way, you know, before the Democrats start dreaming of what they're going to do when they have the presidency and the House and the Senate, it might be nice for them to have at least one of the three, okay? <laughs> because this is just, and I, and, and I love Neil, but these people in D.C., you know, they're, they're, they're drinking a certain Kool-Aid, too, and just talking to each other, and, you know, uh, um, uh, um, uh, and they say wrongly, oh, we didn't start it. It was started because the uh, Republicans stole the Garland seat. And I have to be straight with you that that did not happen. There was nothing illegitimate about that because the Democrats lost the Senate in 2014. And when you don't control both the presidency and the Senate, no Supreme Court vacancy is is a gimme. When you recover, and, and ordinary people would understand that if we're talking about Baseball or football, you'd understand that when you recover, you know, uh, uh, the football, um, at, 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 you know, to the two-yard two line, that's not the same as actually, you know, having six points. And six points isn't the same as having seven points. If that, that point after the touchdown is not automatic, if you saw the Saints game th- th- this weekend, you know, or um, 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 uh, uh, so, so. Akil, would, I didn't know you knew sports. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Someone told me to say that, you that's know. So, so impressive. So, so, I didn't know so, what you were talking about. <laughs> Exactly. um, But um, when the president, um, it wasn't stolen. And and look, Hillary Clinton, you know how many times she mentioned Merrick Garland in the Democratic National Convention? Zero. Okay. It wasn't stolen. We thought we were going to win the presidency. And if we win the presidency, we're going to carry the Senate because we're winning states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin in the Electoral College. There's no ticket splitting. That means we're winning the Senate because we're winning, you know, Pat Toomey is going to be, lose to Katie McGinty and, and Ron Johnson is going to um, lose to Russ Feingold. And then actually Garland goes through. We... The, the, the Republicans didn't steal the Garland seat. We Democrats lost it when we didn't carry the Senate in 2014 and when we failed to carry either the Senate or the presidency in 2016. Elections have consequences. Remember that next month, you know, on November 6th, that you have, you know, whatever your position is, you, you, that's when the fate of the judiciary will be decided. So, so it would be actually, the Democrats would be starting a war if they try to, you know, add to the seats and then the Republicans, when they're back in charge, will do the same. Now, as to the final thing, could you have term limits? Actually, yeah, you could. Could you do it without a constitutional amendment? Because I told you constitutional amendments are actually very difficult to do. Actually, you can. Um, I explain why in this book. Um, I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post in 2002 showing you how you could do it by a mere statute. And because it was very important that this not be partisan, I partnered up with, I'm a Democrat, I'm a liberal, with the founder of the Federal Society, who's a conservative and a Republican, Steve Calabresi. And here's what we did, what we said in 2002. You could have... 18-year terms. You're appointed to the judiciary, to the Supreme Court even, for life. You get your salary for life. For the first 18 years, you're on the front bench. You're hearing cases and deciding cases. After that, you still get paid, but you do other things. You only pinch hit when the court is short-staffed. You help decide the cases in the cert pool and the rule of four. You do administrative stuff. You ride circuit. You're a justice for life, but you're only really deciding cases for the first 18 years. You could do it by a statute. Every president would get two 
um, picks over the course of a four-year term. We would know in advance every election day which seats are coming up. We could have a sane and sober conversation about the seats that are coming up rather than speculating on whether he's going to die or she's going to you know, step down, or, which is icky. Um, it, and we could do it all by statute and, and regularize the process so you don't have no appointments for 11 years, as Marcia said, and then six appointments in the next 11 years. And you don't have justices timing their resignations in sort of political ways, as you might have under the question. So it would be better, and you don't even need an amendment. Okay, let's, let's try to get a few, few questions in. Uh, and this is something else that I've seen some people writing about. The uh, 50 senators who confirmed Justice Kavanaugh represent something like 46% of the population. Is having two senators per state sustainable? It- Sustainable in the sense of will it change? Yes, it will not change. Well, uh, it will not change. Does it make sense? So anymore. So the, the Madison did not create a direct democracy. He created a representative republic. He was centrally concerned with demagogues. He had Athens on his mind. He'd been reading this trunk full of books that Jefferson had sent from Paris about how ancient Athens had gone the way of uh, the demagogue Cleon, and he thought that in all large assemblies of any character composed, passion never failed to wrest the scepter from reason. That was why he believed... That's a quote from the Federalist 55. um, And the second part of the quote is that even if every Athenian had had been been Socrates, Socrates, Athens would still have been a mob. Every assembly would have been a mob. So he's convinced that large, direct groups discussing things face-to-face are motivated by passion. He thinks there, there are two solutions in America. Um, first, a representative republic where wise uh, representatives of the people deliberate on their behalf and don't communicate directly with the people. The idea of tweeting presidents would have appalled Madison, and that's a nonpartisan statement because Obama was the first tweeting president, but the idea is that the representatives are supposed to be removed enough from their constituents that they're not reflecting their momentary passions but are instead are guided by reason. And he thinks the extended size of the American Republic will make it hard for factions or mobs to discover each other because it's hard to organize and it takes a long time to communicate, and therefore... Passion will uh, dissipate, uh, and only rational, reasonable majority rule will triumph. He was not an anti-majoritarian in the sense that he thought that majority sentiments that prevailed over time should be enacted into law. He just thought that momentary passions of factions, which are defined as majorities or minorities, animated by passion rather than reason, direct, devoted to self-interest rather than the public good, uh, should prevail. The tough question about um, the Senate is not, is the Senate itself sustainable? Because the framers obviously thought that it was fine for there to be a popular body, the House, and an uh, unrepresentative body, the Senate, because the senatorial saucer is supposed to cool the passions of the House. The deeper question is, because of polarization and geographic self-sorting, could we have a situation where, through a combination of the Senate and the Electoral College, by the year 2040, maybe you'll be able to know the numbers better than I, you're having uh, strong minorities of the population. 30% of the population is both choosing presidents and justices who are then striking down laws passed by uh, democratically elected state legislatures and so forth. So there might be a point at which the structural uh, minoritarianism of the Constitution makes it impossible for majority will that prevails to be enacted into law. And the example of that, I guess, is gerrymandering, whereas in the Wisconsin case, you had a minority of voters electing uh, representatives who held a majority of the seats. And that was why the challenge in Wisconsin was uh, challenged not on First Amendment grounds as an associational challenge, and that's why the Kennedy's retirement is such a uh, difficult thing. So that would be the that, that, that's a, that would be a Madisonian problem. We may not be there yet, but by 2040. Madison doesn't love the Senate because Madison's a big state guy. Virginia's the biggest state. He wants the Senate to be proportionate, and he loses on that. I'm a Californian. I don't love the composition of the Senate. Um, um, but here's the thing. Um, it, in general, over the American history, hasn't been strongly skewed um, because actually it's tended to cut across the main cleavages in America, which are really north against south, coast against the center, and cities against um, uh, rural areas. So um, 
Uh, there are small um, uh, uh, urban states, New Eng- uh, Northeastern, um, Rhode Island, small um, Western states, uh, Wyoming, um, um, Montana, uh, Alaska. Um, in 2012, Barack Obama won a popular majority. More people voted, because there's very little ticket splitting, for um, Democrats for the House than Republicans, because there's very little ticket splitting. But Barack Obama carried only about 180 um, House uh, districts. The Democrats won the popular vote for the House nationwide and did not win the House of Representatives. That's supposed to be popular, but it actually um, uh, wasn't quite. And at that point, though, the party that actually had got more votes had a majority in the Senate. You see, that's not true in this nanosecond, but it has ebbed and flowed over time. Could you change the Senate even if you wanted to. Some people say no. As a practical matter, you can't do it at all. It's unamendable. Not quite. The Constitution says that you can't change the composition of the Senate. Um, No state shall be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate without its own consent, which would mean, in effect, all 50 states. That's never going to happen. But actually, you could do it by an ordinary amendment. It it would still require two-thirds of the existing senators to vote for it, and that's Wyomings as well as Californians, three-quarters of the existing states to ratify it. Wyoming counted equally with California. So that's a still hard thing to do, but it wouldn't require unanimity. Here's what you do. You just create an alternative, by an amendment, propose an amendment, an alternative upper house. Let's call it the Schmennet. And, <laughs> and everything that the Senate now gets to do is given to the Schmennet, except the, the uh, confirmation of um, uh, uh, the nominations of assistants postmasters general. Um, um, so, so, but it's still going to be very hard to do because Wyoming's aren't going to be up for it. Um, the only way to do it, and there is a way, it's in one of my other books. Um, the, the only way to do it is if you do the following. You say, we're going to have an amendment, and it's going to go into effect in 100 years. Okay? We can be framers for the future. And if you're, yes, if you're a Wyoming person now, you're going to, you know, you don't, uh, you don't want to change Wyoming's rules now because if you're a Wyoming senator, you love it. Um, if you're a Wyoming um, voter, it overrepresents you, you love it. But my fellow Americans in Wyoming, your great-grandchildren, as yet unborn, are far more likely to be Californians and New Yorkers than Wyomians. So if this is actually not fair, you as, you know, thinking about your as-yet-unborn great-grandchildren, and you think about your as-yet-unborn, I do, my as-yet-unborn great-grandchildren, we should be fair to all our as-yet-unborn great-grandchildren. And if it's not fair, and they're more likely to be Californians than New York, and New Yorkers than Wyomians, maybe you should have an amendment and it goes into effect in 100 years, um, a, a sunrise idea. We could be framers of the future. This, and, and Jefferson didn't understand any of this, but Madison did, the same way Madison understood that they would be framers for us. We can never pay our parents back, but we can actually pay it forward um, for our children and grandchildren. That's the only way it could happen. Okay, well, we have to end it, but I, uh, I'm sorry we don't get to more of your questions. Uh, at some point, we might have to have a discussion where we just take your questions. <laughs> uh, but for now, please uh, thank these wonderful scholars. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History or visit us at nyhistory.org.